Welcome back to the Nick Taylor Horror Show. Rodney Asher is an American documentary filmmaker, perhaps best known among us horror fans for Room 237, a documentary that focuses on the exhaustively diverse amount of theories surrounding The Shining. Rodney's other projects include The Nightmare, a terrifying deep dive into the world of sleep paralysis, and Primal Screen, which is about childhood fears of characters that fall into the uncanny valley, now streaming on Shudder. Rodney's latest movie, A Glitch in the Matrix, explores the widely reported phenomena of simulation theory, the terrifying idea that all of human life is a big simulation as portrayed in the matrix. Guys, this movie is fantastic. All of Rodney's movies are really amazing. He's one of the most fascinating documentarians out there. So definitely check out his other films like room 237 and the nightmare, but run, don't walk to see a glitch in the matrix. It's extremely unique, fascinating. And as always, Rodney's directorial style is downright hypnotic. Also, if you're even remotely interested in this notion of simulation theory, I suggest checking out the Reddit thread also titled a glitch in the matrix. If you really want to get freaked out by some firsthand accounts of this phenomenon, check it out on Reddit. So this is my second interview with Rodney. And in my first, we get into his director origin story and more of his techniques and processes as a filmmaker. So if you're interested in that, definitely check out episode number 36. In this interview, Rodney and I focused almost exclusively on a glitch in the matrix. I always enjoy speaking to him. So here, without further ado, is master documentarian Rodney Asher. Rodney Asher, good to see you again. How's it going? It's good. Great to see you, man. You too. You too. So, I mean, I've been a big fan of yours for a long time. I've seen all your movies, very familiar with them. But I think Glitch in the Matrix might actually be my favorite so far. So, first oh, of all, bravo. <laughs> really, really fantastic. And just super different in so many ways. I mean, I'm always fascinated by the kind of ethereal sensibility of your movies where tonally it is these your movies are so different from so many documentaries but the the kind of ethereal nature of it feels like it's so thought out on a way it's just so beautifully orchestrated so i mean first of all in terms of just finding the tone of your movies i'm curious as to how you how you're able to orchestrate this just very different style of documentary filmmaking yeah um well well thanks and i i I appreciate all that and i'm glad that that um you know that that mood works for you because it is certainly something that we spend a lot of time trying to it, it, trying to bring down for a landing, right? Mm-hmm. Um, now I'd say there may be a couple things about how that works, and you know, I mean, the reason it's that way is mostly just a um, um, you know a, a question of taste, yeah, right? That I always love music that casts sort of a hypnotic spell whether it's through repetition or through tones that continue um, for a long time. I mean, I love to just sort of resynchronize my brainwaves to something I'm watching or listening and keep that connection without, you know, breaking it to, you know, get a snack from the fridge or check my phone. But, Mm -hmm. you know, if you can, if you can get that kind of connection where it almost feels like, you know, people are breathing at the same time, if you know Mm -hmm. what I mean. And I experienced that. You know, when I'm watching um, things that I love or or, or listening to music, um, I think, you know, the way we try to pull that off, you know, there's maybe two or three things about it. You know, one of them is that we're not 
we, we don't build the base of it, the audio track, the interviews on sound bites. You know, we let people speak at great length. Mm-hmm. You know, so there's, you know, fewer people, I think, usually appear in my stuff than in um, than in a lot of other docs, maybe things that are closer to journalism. I, I, I see a real model for what we do um, in This American Life, mm-hmm. you know, where they'll have regular people telling long stories and both, you know, things that usually have, you know, you know, very unusual striking events that occur within them. But then there's also a period of reflection when they think about what this means to them and how it changed them. Hmm. And that's something that, you know, we do with the the people that, that I interview in these pieces. Yeah. So, the movie has these kind of ambient pauses where something significant has been said and it just kind of allows the viewer time to absorb it, which I think that it's brilliantly done and they're done. They're, they're integrated in a way where they feel just very natural, but it's just like there's so much information and so much of it was so mind blowing, particularly in this movie, but you just, you need those little pauses, but they just, they flow so beautifully with the style of the movie and the music and everything. So I thought that was a really interesting choice. Yeah. And you can't discount the power of the music, right? I've been mm-hmm. working with Jonathan Snipes since 237, and I hope to work with him on every project I do for the rest of my life. Because, you know, not only do I like, you know, sort of the... um the vocabulary that he works with, the instruments that he uses, the style of music, but he also gets that mood, mm-hmm. right? And often the mood is supposed to sort of reflect the kind of emotional quality of the storytellers, even, or maybe especially when it's at odds with what my reaction to something might be like, or what I imagine the audience is, uh, that, that the audiences will. And the music goes along to that sort of hypnotic, repetitive ethereal quality yeah um you know as well as you know a lot of the footage i i I try to let i I try to let shots play out so that we can just sort of soak in their atmosphere and live in them for a while i mean a pet peeve of mine you know is you know a movie with unbelievable you know special effects or costumes or sets that rushes through before we get a chance to really see everything and Mm -hmm. You know, I just want I just want to soak in it and fall under you know and in, in, in soak under the water of the uh, uh, of the spell of a movie or even just a moment. Yeah. Well, your collaboration with Snipe feels it feels like he's the Danny Elfman to your Tim Burton in a way. And <laughs> when it comes to these orchestrating these scenes, what is your process like working with him? Does he come up with a piece of music first? Do you tell him here's the mood I'm going for? Is it something different? Like, what is that well, process it's a couple like? Things. And it's evolved over the films, um, but I always, I typically edit with music, you know, starting with, you know, stuff from my collection. Mm-hmm. Although in these later projects, he's both given me um, music from other people that he thinks might be in the appropriate style. Um, as often as ever since 237, um, I immediately moved to reusing his old music mm-hmm. in temps for the, um, for the new stuff, because I mean, again, because I just, Love it so much, and it always matches the moods that we're that we're going here through. I suppose that might make sense to somebody. <laughs> there's a, there's another step of the process that I really love, which is called the spotting session, right? Uh-huh. And what you do is, me and Jonathan sit in a room. Um, this go round, we were doing it vir- virtually, like I'm talking with you. We weren't able to be in the actual right. same physical room, but we watch the movie. 
and he has a recorder going and we just talk about the mood as we step through it and you know i don't really i don't have any kind of music education and you know i have a I have strong opinions about music I like and music I don't like, but I can't speak with it with any sort of specificity. I don't understand most musical vocabulary. So when I'm describing a moment, I have to try to, you know, paint a picture, you know, Mm -hmm. say something like, all right, this is a moment where our character is sinking into the quicksand, but right here now someone has thrown a rope to him. And and we record that, and he syncs it up to the movie, and then he has that as a reference. Hmm. And the music will, you know, say have some turning point that reflects that mood change at that moment. Yeah. You know, and then as so, and as the two of us sort of talk through the movie, and at that point, um, a lot of his questions get answered, and then I get really excited as I hear about the ideas of how he's going to approach things. Um, and of course, he doesn't just do the music; he's also the sound designer okay. um, and supervising the mix. So all the sound effects are coming from the same hands and are working with um, are working with the same palette. So it's fully integrated. Yeah, I mean, there's just there's an ethereal sensibility to your movies that I, I don't think I've ever seen in any other documentaries, certainly before. So I mean, just it, it sounds like it's it's such a organic process when the, when you guys work together it must be really intensive and focus heavy to really just get <laughs> get it right yeah well i mean I, although in this one i mean because we've been working together for a while now i think we probably you know talked the least you gotta be right? a shorthand we yeah and you know we understand we, we each understand how the other works and um what's helpful what's not helpful um yeah um uh, not 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 much more to say on that, but yeah. he's able to he he's a, often able to walk some really tricky lines emotionally in some sequences, you know, and you know they elevate you know the power of the scene, you know, by a, you know a power of ten. Yeah, I feel like one of the common sort of pitfalls for a lot of documentaries is that they focus too much on talking heads and a lot of people get bored of that and you had a very unique solve <laughs> in this movie so how did these um, these kind of avatar people come about were you trying to hide their identity or where did where did this idea come from because it was so cool one of them wanted to be anonymous but for the others um they were just happy to go where i wanted to um take it and that was an idea that i had really early on that we wouldn't see the faces of the of the um, primary people talking, but instead we would see some sort of animated avatar. And we went through a couple of different ideas with it, but where we landed, um, and you know what I think is works pretty well is that there's sort of video game esque characters, mm-hmm. you know, who maybe look like they may be from some kind of half-forgotten comic book series or old science fiction movie um, who appear within um, these Skype calls that I did with the original people. And we keep the natural background behind them wherever, whatever arbitrary place they happened mm-hmm. to do the recording from. And it gives you this amazing sense of, um, well, there's a, bl- there's a blurring of, you know, fantasy and reality where we've got these unreal characters in a very real mundane you know human location and they're also speaking very informally um and it allows us to also use those characters in the animated reenactments so it's Mm -hmm. exactly the same person and not 
what an, an actor who looks kind of like the person that you interviewed. Right. Um, and there's so much talk in this movie using, you know, video games as a metaphor for life. The fact that in a way, I think these interviews look like talking to a video game character on their day off. Um, it <laughs> <laughs> feels on message, you know, for the right. project. Yeah. Yeah. It seemed to work you know, beautifully well with the, with the subject of the documentary. And one thing I remember from our last interview was that when it comes to these topics, you seem to folk and you even I believe you said something along the lines of you. You're not trying to be a journalist. You're trying to focus more on people's experience with these things and people's perception of these topics, like with nightmare and particularly with this. So what was the research process like, considering that you were less focused on the you know technical side, although it did get into some technical histories and the Philip K. Dick being a through line throughout the movie that just was was fascinating. But what was the research process like, you know, in the context of you wanting to ensure that this was mostly focused on people's individualized perceptions of this notion of a uh, simulation of simulation theory? Well, it was twofold, right? And the, and the characters, the subjects sort of fall into two categories, mostly, that there are, you know, the people who, when I mean, we call them eyewitnesses, mm -hmm. you know, who have gone through something in their life through on the other end of it, have come to believe in simulation theory. And then there's sort of a handful of experts who have interesting perspectives on it, whether they're talking about, um, whether they're talking about philosophy or an expert on Philip K. Dick, or they've thought a lot about like Plato's cave, um, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, those folks came from, you know, as, we, as I did the research before I did the movie, you know, I kind of came up with sort of a hundred important things about simulation theory. Mm -hmm. um, many of which I would hope that would get in the film, clearly not all of them you know, would be able to fit. You know, so when we talk about Plato's cave, which is an important precursor, you know, philosophically, the notion that, um, you know, these prisoners who saw shadows on the wall projected from a flame behind them would think that those shadows are reality mm -hmm. until one is freed and he has to sort of um, reconcile his memory of the shadowy figures with what's out there in the real, real world. Right. And how most of us in some way or another are only looking at shadows. Don't get a one-to-one -one, um, encounter with everything in the real world. And at a certain point in this project, I found um, um, a link to Emily Pottis' article and reflection on Plato's cave. Hmm. You know, and she had a great way of sort of looking at it um, in contrast with you know people's media environments hmm. and how different people who soak in different media environments build up different reconstructions of the world in their heads, you know? And so she was quickly somebody that I wanted to talk to, to shine a light, knock on, to shine a light on yeah. that idea. And then interestingly enough, you know, nobody fits in only in only one box. So she had a lot to say about other related issues. So that's a different kind of category than, the four guys, you know, who each went through their own personal journeys. And those folks, we didn't find. They found us. Really? We, yeah, well, we announced that we were doing the movie. Okay. And we set up a place online where folks could reach us, you know, and then, I don't know, 100 or so people sent us their stories. Mm -hmm. And from those, you know, we have, those are the, um, those are the four that, you know, made it into the, into, into the final cut. Yeah. I mean, there'd have been no way for us to find them. These are people who are just living their lives 
um, wrestling with this idea in private, mm-hmm. um, you know, that we, we, we needed we needed to create an opportunity for someone who really wanted to share that experience and share those ideas uh, to find us. Yeah. Well, there was one case, there was one person whose experience was extremely tragic and extremely terrifying. Did you converse with that person? Was that somebody that you were able to interview? Oh yeah. That um, Josh cook, you mean? Yeah. Um, Yeah. Well, that was, that was a phone call. That was the one that, we weren't able to do that one on person and we weren't yeah, able to to set up a Skype, but you know, in the research of, in my research on simulation theory, I came across the idea of the matrix defense and mm, that right. more than one person has used the fact that they thought they were living in a digital simulation as part of their criminal defense. So, um, you know, we tried to find someone who could speak to that and, you know, Josh Cook, you know, is, um, you know, you know, lived it. Yeah, of course. So when it came to all of the different subjects and topics and every, I mean, it's, it's a very emotionally loaded concept. The idea of simulation theory, it did. I mean, I'm sure as a director, you had to be relatively journalistic about all of this and objective, even though your movies are not as journalistic and they're more cerebral and they're more focused on individual experiences. But was there in your research or in these conversations, did you ever have anything close to an existential crisis when it comes to, you know, processing this idea of simulation theory? Was there anything that got a little too either scary or, you know, did this jar Um, you or jolt you in any way? I mean, I found, I I think the aspects of the film that some people might found troubling, I found troubling too, but um, never in a way that, you know, came close to, um, you know, knocking me out of commission. Yeah. Um, It it would probably be a better story if, um, if it, if it was, if I had to, you know, check into a hotel in a, in a a tropical Island to to recover from the existential horror that I uncovered in my journey. But (laughs) You know, this was a day job. I'd go to the office and I would listen to these troubling stories. And then I would come home and eat dinner and play with my kid and watch TV and fall asleep early, um, you know, with the lights still on yeah, on the couch. <laughs> well, of all the very fascinating concepts in the movie, the Mandela theory blew my mind. There were something, there were some details in there that I just, I, I couldn't, I couldn't believe. Like when they showed this, I think it was Snow White or Sleeping Beauty. I think it was Snow White. There was a lot of moments where you just kind of go, what? There was a lot of that. (laughs) Were there any concepts that hit the cutting room floor that were really hard for you to pull from the movie because they were either fascinating or interesting? Yeah, there were a bunch, right? Um, Let me see. There's one. um, Well, one of them, you know, which was, you know, you you know, more horror, more existentially horrifying than many of the others was the idea that um, the simulation was create that everybody in the simulation is one person, mm-hmm. the same person. Whoa! And in fact, that person is the sort of supernatural creator of the simulation, like a god, you know, who is like a god, like an immortal omnipotent God who faced with infinity alone created the world and then 
played every part one at a time, um, you know, reincarnating through time and space across the planet as a way of killing a couple million years. Whoa. <laughs> That's yeah, that sounds rooted in Hinduism. And I know you got into like Hindu gods and incarnations within incarnations and things like yeah. that. But yeah, that's that's pretty wild. <laughs> yeah, one thing that was that was kind of crazy is the guy who you profiled who did the sensory deprivation tank. I was in that same tank and I talked to that same dude. Who, that same guy? That same guy. <laughs> I've awesome. done a sensory deprivation experience once. I highly recommend it to anybody. It's fa- it's it's fantastic. But I just happened to do it at that same dude's apartment. Oh, that's amazing. Yeah, yeah that's really a nice guy. Coincidence. What's that? Yeah, he yeah. looks. Well, I mean, we reached out to get permission to use his picture. He said, "Oh, sure, whatever you need. I've got others if you need them." Yeah, um, yeah. I, I went in. I went into a tank myself. Um, you know, in preparation for, um, for dramatizing that scene. Um, oh, nice. What was your experience like? I wished it would have been um, more psychedelic, right? But there was a, a, a new place that opened up that was like the vibe of it was it, it's a chain, and the vibe of it was very similar to like a massage envy mm. kind of a yeah. kind of a spa. That's um, what I felt too. Yeah, I was looking for them in New York because I live in the city, and I was looking for a sensory dep- sensory deprivation tank. And the rest of them felt like tanning salons or like you know, yeah, that's kind of the vibe of it. And this but dude's still- place—that's why I chose it because he—I called him on the phone, and he, he was very engaging. He's like, "I talked to you before, then I talked to you after about your experience," and he's like, "All right, this sounds great. Sounds like exactly what I want." Well, what happened to you? Anything? And did you see anything? No, I can't say I saw anything, but it was extremely clarifying. It just, just there was this because I meditate, I do transcendental meditation, which is uh, I, I think it just it enables your it, it's like a cognitive superpower. It makes you not immune to irrationality or irrational thoughts, but it helps you defend against them way better. You just become aware of your own mind, and you you're way less triggered or jarred by things and you know you don't self-sabotage as much so I, I went in with a little bit of a sense of that sense of calm but just getting rid of all of that input all the time and all of those racing thoughts for an hour and a half i just came out very clear and all i wanted to do was like you know reabsorb stuff i just wanted to go home and read and watch movies and i felt like i'd kind of emptied the tank my own you know brain for a while so yeah i didn't have any kind of there were some sort of set. There was like a sensibility of being disembodied from my body um, and like that a little bit. You know, there was a sense of being just like in the primordial source a little. So there was like maybe a few moments that were a little bit spiritual, but there's nothing super psychedelic. Um, but it was just, yeah, it was, it was very calming and clarifying. And I feel like you got to do it a bunch of times to really get the effects, you know? I want to do it more. I want to try doing it more, but yeah, I've only done it once, but I'll, I'll probably jump back into one at some point. Yeah. I, I, I wished, I, I don't think I even got that from it, that I was in the dark and I was you know just con- conscious of my breathing. But I mean, maybe because I spend so much time alone um, when I'm working on, on these sorts of projects that I can sit in my head and not say anything and just follow a train of thought for. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I was just always in my head and I hardly ever even, you know, sort of forgot that I was in the, in the tank. I was hoping to sort of go someplace. Yeah. The, the one thing that, you know, uh, I was trying also to, to, to be very conscious of um, anything that I might want to include 
within the reenactment. And I remembered that hmm. um, that Leo said um, that he could hear even his eyelashes. Yeah. Did you, did you hear that? Did I did. Yours? I paid attention. I, I did. You know, and I tried to really pay attention to it. And it was, you know, like a. Thup, thup. Yeah, it's bizarre. Yeah, because I mean, it was, you know, this place, you know, didn't necessarily have the most, um, you know, fascinating atmosphere, but right. it was the, the tank was, you know, very was was serious and it was large and it was warm and it was pitch pitch black, mm-hmm. um, you know. But I always felt safe that there was like a, um, you know, a panic button not too far away. Oh, that's good. Um, but um, yeah, no, I was I, I I had trouble getting out of my head, and you know, I've tried. A lot of people that I admire are really into TM, mm-hmm. so I've sort of just tried to do it on my own, and I've never had any luck. I either st- stay stuck in my head or just fall asleep. Yeah, yeah, that's where I did. A lot of people I admire do too, like you know Seinfeld, David Lynch. I got sir. I um, Andy Kaufman was oh, was big. Andy it. Kaufman did it. I didn't know that. Oh my god! Yeah, he was complete. He he was very very deep into it. Oh wow, that's interesting. Yeah, yeah. I went um, to the David Lynch Foundation in New York, and that's where they taught oh, me. Neat. Yeah. yeah, yeah. It's good to have a teacher, though, for sure. I'd re- I mean, if you ever want to give it another shot, I recommend getting a teacher. Mm-hmm. But um, so, the topics of your documentaries are always really, really fascinating. How do you decide on I'm going to pursue this? I'm sure you have tons of ideas on a regular basis. Is there any sort of litmus test that you pre- that you put yourself through to decide? Okay, I'm going to pursue this. I think the biggest question for me is whether I stay interested you know, for more than, you know, a couple days at a time. Yeah. Right. You know, like in the case of all three of these subjects, there are things that I just never, once I started thinking about them, I never let go. I could never stop talking about them. Remember, you know, developing, tossing two, three, seven around with Tim Kirk that the two of us would talk about not only the shining, but the whole idea of, you know, interpreting every little detail in a piece of art probably for two years before we embarked on the film and mm-hmm. you know sleep paralysis and um and um simulation theory have been have have, have been sort of the same yeah and, and and the other thing i like about them is they're big mysteries um but i don't feel an obligation to solve them because mm. they're bigger than i am right i'm i'm not going to be the guy who can prove definitively or debunk simulation theory yeah yeah and with sleep paralysis i'm not the guy who's going to be able to prove that this is giving us access to the supernatural or that it's just a dream mm-hmm. you know that i'm happy to leave these mysteries as unso- as unsolvable for now yeah i've I, and that's something i really love about your movies is there's no agenda to dis to prove or disprove anything and it'll it gives the movie this sense of flow and kind of I don't know how to put it. It just allows the movie to be the movie and to be this very natural sort of thing instead of you being so tied up with having an agenda. Well, I showed this side. Now I have to show the antithesis of the side to be even. And then I come to the, and then I come to the conclusion. Yeah. Right. Right. I don't don't have a horse in the race, whether, you know, simulation theory is real or not or, 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 or any of these things. So I'm happy to reflect, you know, the ideas and the struggles of, people who thought about it more than I have and mm-hmm. many of whom have had firsthand experience, firsthand experience, yeah. you know, and just try to put the audience into their heads yeah, and let them look at the world or look at these subjects through, you know, through their eyes. 
Yeah. And I, I mean, again, I think that's what makes these movies, your movies as interesting as they are because they're just agenda free. We seem to be in um, documentaries seem to be having a real heyday. There's a lot of them now and they're coming out left and right. And I feel like um, with more and more documentaries coming out, this sort of templated documentary style is going to go by the wayside. And I feel like we're going to have to see more documentaries like yours that are refreshingly structurally different. Um, and that just give viewers a different kind of cinematic experience with a documentary. But having said that, are there any recent documentaries you've seen that you found to be just refreshingly different in the way that they tell the story? And I know you've been working hard on this doc, so I'm sure you have not had a lot of time to see many, but is there anything that comes to mind in the past few years that's recent and exciting in the documentary space? Yeah, there's one that I loved, um, Penny Lane's The Pain of Others. Oh, I've heard of that. I didn't, I didn't yeah, see that one. And that one's amazing. What she did is, I had never heard of it, but there's this um, thing called Morgellons syndrome, Morgellons disease, which is like this kind of skin, itchy, painful kind of, kind of condition. And, you know, what's interesting about it, among other things, is that, you know, Western medicine isn't... Um, hundred percent sure whether it's real or psychosomatic. Okay. And 95% of this movie is nothing but YouTube videos of people documenting their symptoms, their fight with it, their progression, you know, and um, some of it, <laughs> some, some of it gets very, very, very troubling. Yeah. But, you know, I just loved, you know, the rawness of, you know, of the of these naked webcams and these people who were you know confessing their stories online and you know if you think some of the stories in this movie are personal you know that one goes 10 times further um and it's also you know to me really provocative about you know um as a you know, there there are many kinds of films that I love as an audience and one of them is a collage film you know, mm. making a making a movie from pre-existing elements, mm-hmm. and um, you know the fact that most of this was made by collecting, you know, stuff off of YouTube. Yeah, is you know very 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 new and different and personal, and you know allowed her to compile. You know, some I think some of these confessions probably went, you know, over the span of you know a couple of years. Yeah. Um, you know, um, so that one, that one really blew me away. Um, you know, I was a gigantic fan of Brett Morgan's Jane. Okay. I got to see that um, one. Oh my gosh. And that's another one. Like, you know, it is not just a piece of journalism. It is sound and picture and it is a rock opera. Oh, wow. <laughs> you know, you know, uh, where, you know, you learn where it's the mean, the meaning of life via, you know, Jane Goodall's um, experiences, you know, with the, with the apes. Okay. And oh, that's the ex- one where they have found all of that archival footage that nobody had seen before that they just recovered. Yeah. I mean, it's mostly archival too, though. There's a contemporary interview that he did with her. Um, and that footage is exquisite and it's sort of like, you know, if you, if you've ever, you know, kind of got into like looking like going to a used bookstore and just sort of loving like the colors of old 
National Geographic magazine covers. Yeah. You know, that sort of like ectochrome slide film, that color process, like it sort of takes the aesthetics of a National Geographic cover from the 70s. Oh, that's cool. And pushes it, you know, push, pushes it to 11 with a new Philip Glass score, you know, that's just, again, just cut in a way that is, you know, beyond what you'd see you know, behind a band, like at a, at a metal, con- like at a metal concert, oh, wow. it turns into a collab- into a whole kaleidoscope, you know, projected huge and blast the soundtrack. That sounds insane. <laughs> yeah, it's on Netflix. I think, I think Netflix did it. Or it might be, I think it's on Disney plus cause it's not geo. Oh really? I don't know why I thought yeah. I saw a Jane Goodall documentary on, uh, there's, there's probably more than one. Yeah, yeah this one, this be. one's called Jane, you know, and it's, okay. it's, you know, Brett Morgan who did, he did the Kurt Cobain one yep. and the kid stays in the picture. Um, which I love. His, his stuff is always amazing. Okay, cool. All right, I will definitely check those out. So the the visuals in Glitch in the Matrix were so much fun and so cool and so interesting. There's a particularly fascinating sequence at the end that they kind of fly on the or that fly through the, the house at, towards the end of the movie. Could you tell us about just the overall visuals? What was your approach and how you got some of these? pieces of footage but also do want to drill down into that last sequence because it was it was really cool yeah well there's three or four buckets that the animation comes in right um you know i worked with like sid garen at mind bomb and lorenzo fonda and davy force and if you remember do you remember a short from a couple of years ago the chickening where the shining no. was remixed into this sort of completely absurd adult swim-esque um fried chicken commercial no <laughs> Sounds amazing though. No, yeah, it's 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 so surreal and it's so and it's and it's so colorful. It almost looks like a um a wacky packs kind of come to life. Whoa. Like this acid drenched Easter egg color um photoreal animation. Anyway, that was Davy Force um and I'm forgetting his partner's name, but Davy did um the animation of like the guy in the movie theater in the spaceship at the end that mm-hmm. had a sort of a more of a photo real look right lorenzo did the avatars and he would actually wear a rubber um kind of motion capture suit to make their to get their movements to be sort of natural oh, that's cool but that moment where we're kind of flying through the house um was something that again that was that was something that came together you know in the last you know sort of big push to finish the film where to retrace um, his steps, what we did is we found a house that had a layout kind of like the one in the story. Mm-hmm. Um, actually, two, because there's a basement involved. And the, the first house that had the bedrooms and the kitchen and things didn't have a basement. So we kind of stitched these together. And mm-hmm. we brought in this photogrammetry expert who's a guy who what they do is you take two machines, right, on a tripod. One of them shoots laser. You put it in the middle of the room, and it shoots lasers in every direction, and it takes measurement of where everything is in space. And then he marches through with, like, three still cameras that are on different angles that um, take pictures of every detail in a room, and he'll, like, move both of them around on sort of a grid. Mm-hmm. Then afterwards, you take the photographs, and you apply them like wallpaper onto the digital wireframe model of the room. Wow. And it looks photo real until you get too close to anything. Right. Right. And especially you see pixels and you see like, if you, especially if you get to like some off corner, you know, like under a table or behind a lamp that 
it sort of guesses the geometry and things kind of blend into each other and uh you know lamps sort of grow and grow and melt into the table mm-hmm. so we did that for all the rooms that we were moving through in the um in the house and then lorenzo um and his uh uh, and his partner Tommaso would sort of float a camera through it and move the lighting through. Mm-hmm. So it felt like we were kind of revisiting memories because at one point it, at, at first look, it's very realistic, but it's degraded right on the edges. And um, there were things we did with like the posters that we needed to um, obscure for copyright reasons, but it gave us a great opportunity to kind of, digitally smear them yeah that was um, and they would kind of wiggle a little bit and you know i think the feeling we were trying to evoke was sort of reliving an old memory but after having done it like a hundred times that it begins to kind of degrade around the edges which um coincidentally or maybe not you know is something that philip k dick talked about a lot especially in ubic Mm. where the world was just sort of melting together and degrading and, and 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 falling apart yeah um so that was a um yeah that, that was a sequence i was astonished at how well they were um the guys were able to pull that together and you know the sort of distinctive look of it I, I'm, I'm not sure that I, I think i think i'd like to think that we pushed that technology forward a little bit that it hadn't been used um um in, in, in quite that way before. Yeah, it's mostly used for video games and particularly virtual reality, I believe, photogrammetry is. And I think that real and for, estate... And for, is, and, for, and for real estate, absolutely. Yeah, yeah that, that's a way to click around through uh, through rooms, but not to um, not, not, not to set a blow-by-blow a blow blow cinematic recreation inside of it. It looked unbelievable. Really, 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 really cool. So what is next for you? I've got... Four, you know, kind of plates in the air. Um, two of them are scripted, and two of them are documentaries. Um, oh wow! Although you know the scripted ones have elements that will not be completely unfamiliar um, to people who've seen who've seen the docs. Um, but um, you know, in any case, um, I mean, all of them are going to be places where I get to, um, um, you know, get knock on wood, you know, even more ambitious with. Um, you know, the visual storytelling, which is always one of the, uh, the fun parts of these projects. Interesting. Well, I can't wait. <laughs> so the movie comes out next week. We, right. Yeah. Well, it premieres at Sundance on Saturday, um, the 30th. Um, and then February 5th, it goes on okay. demand. Great. And people can find it just on their normal on demand channels, Amazon, iTunes, or the, they call or the virtual cinema where you can, you know, go to, um, like the website of your neighborhood theater and, you know, um, let them take the percentage instead of uh, Jeff oh, Bezos cool. or Tim Apple. Nice. Yeah. Well, Rodney, real pleasure talking to you as always. Uh, th- this was such a fantastic movie. And uh, thank you again for taking the time. This was, this was a lot of fun. Well, great to talk to you, Nick. I appreciate Thanks. all that. All right. Thank you guys as always for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, why not share it with your friends and family on social media? Don't forget to follow the show on Instagram and I'm Nick Taylor. That's I am Nick Taylor and on Twitter at the same handle. Thanks again for listening to the Nick Taylor Horror Show. Horror Show.